Bonnie and Linda. Spectacular as always. Um, questions, man. They get you off guard. <sighs> I think we answered it well, right, Mike? <laughs> yeah? Well, yeah, you were there. You were agreeing with me in a way, so I'm just like, yeah, Mike agrees, so it's all that matters, right? Um, all right, so if you have your Bibles, please open them to Isaiah chapter 34. Um, and as you might guess from today's title of the sermon, it's going to be an interesting one. Um, and we'll go ahead and look at our maps, though, just to see where we're at. Again, Assyria is the major baddie during the time they are conquering all the known world, um, all the way down into Egypt, Babylon, Elam, Media, Ararat. Um, they're just kind of going everywhere. And actually, the Medes were, they didn't really conquer the Medes. They were like, hey, Medes, come join us and conquer everything. And the Medes were like, we like to kill things, so sure. Um, dark but true. So basically, Assyria is the one who is the great threat against Jerusalem and Judah at this time. And the next slide kind of shows again how they went around conquering everybody. Um, and actually, not, not the next time we meet, but the time after that, we're going to see what exactly happens in the next slide, in which case Jerusalem itself is going to be under threat along with all of Judah as the Assyrians come um, to take over. Today, however, we're going to be looking a little bit at Edom, which is down here. Um, Edom and Israel slash Judah had a very contentious history, and they are going to be utilized by the prophet as a way of describing all the nations. But I just wanted to point that out in case anyone wondered, okay, where's Edom? Edom is right here, and that's kind of what the people we're going to be discussing in a way, um, just so we go, we're all on the same page going forward. So, all right, let's go ahead, and we'll start with verse 1. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world, and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away. And the skies will roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. So Isaiah calls on the nations to hear. That he specifies with give attention further emphasizes this point. It is not a mere hearing, but to be attentive. Focus on what is being stated. That all the earth and the world are called to such an engagement shows the wholeness of the proclamation. It is not some people or some tribe or some group, but all. What is the pronouncement? That the Lord is justifiably angry. The Lord is the covenant name for Yahweh, um, for the people of Israel and Judah. Who is he angry against? The nations and their host. That is, the nations as a whole, as well as the individuals who make up those nations. This anger leads to wrath and judgment against them. He is bringing them to destruction and slaughter. For many, if not most, if not even all, human cultures, the idea of not having a proper burial after death is seen as shameful. So it is with all the nations. Those who have been defeated will be cast out into the open, and their stench rises. The imagery of blood tells us how greatly humanity is crushed by God. The destruction is focused on the heavens. The host of heaven is also seen as rotting away. This can represent two things, and it might be both at the same time. The first is the physical universe, which has been tainted by sin. 
The second is the false pagan gods who were worshipped, they were lived by, and claimed to be the authors of reality. In either case, they will all find destruction at the hands of God Almighty. Now I come to verses 5 through 8. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Once God has destroyed the heavens, then it will come judgment against the earth. The fact that Edom is focused upon has caused some contention. It is likely that Edom Edom is representing all the nations. This makes sense since Edom and Israel slash Judah were often at odds, a problem which started well before either nation existed with Jacob and Esau. Regardless, Edom represents the enemies of God, and as such, God is devoting them to destruction. The language utilizing, um, starting in verse 6, is very interesting. It is reminiscent of sacrifices. The fat and the blood were dedicated to God in sacrifice. It is even more emphasized as Basra, the capital of Edom, is considered itself a sacrifice. This is consistent with the law's concept of guilt and sin. If sinners do not sacrifice for their sins, then their guilt will cause them to become the sacrifice themselves. As such, the Edomites, again representing all the nations, will experience such a sacrifice of themselves. There is some debate about verse 7 as to the wild oxen and the young steers. Some commentators' belief is that it is a reference to the leadership of the people. In this way, it shows that there will be, uh, not be any partiality. All the people, whether great or small, will experience the destruction to come. Ultimately, their blood will be spilled, just as the sacrificial animals were on the altar. Part of the reason for all of this bloodshed and judgment is because the Lord has decreed a day when essentially enough would be enough. Not only has his name been profaned among the nations, but we also find the treatment of his people to be a reason for the destruction. In a way, this is encouraging to the people, for it means God will not stay his hand forever. And it is a reminder to them that he is still far more powerful than they or other nations. All right, we're going to go ahead and read the rest of the chapter, 9 through 17. And Betsy, I had to split up into two slides, so we'll have to jump over when it gets to the appropriate time. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom. And all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goats shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, 
There the night bird settles and finds herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lay and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. So the result of the destruction to come is a scorched earth, so to speak. Despite the once peaceful and bountiful land, it has become destitute. The poetic imagery here is significant. The judgment effects are so great it is impossible for humans to dwell on the land. Some scholars note that when human pride is unleashed, it naturally leads to the destruction not only of humans, but of nature as well. As stated, this is poetic imagery. It is meant to convey a great devastation, but not a total annihilation of the land itself. If that was the case, there wouldn't be animals which would be able to possess the land. The statement of the plumb line um, of emptiness is interesting, but likely shows that the human constructions has all been broken. Indeed, this is the case seen in verses 12 and 13. The nobles, the leadership, the kingdom itself is no more. There is no prince because there is no kingdom. Instead of humans who are in control of the strongholds and the fortresses, there will be only wild nature. Thorns shall now inhabit the fortifications. That is nothing that can bring forth life. Indeed, jackals and ostriches are interesting and may represent the mournful wails of animals that, have, uh, that are only left. The wildness continues with hyenas meeting with the goats and the nightbirds. Some argue that the goats and the nightbirds, they may represent demonic figures such as uh, satyrs and hags. But the surrounding context makes that seem unlikely, so I wouldn't press too much emphasis on that. Still, the owls will nest in the land as well as the hawks. Again, throughout all of this, we see how humans are no longer the inhabitants, but instead the animals are. God has made it that each of these will find its habitat. The people are then encouraged to read the book of the Lord. Scholars have debated what this means, though it seems reasonable to conclude it is the law, which is the guide for humans considering morality and justice. Just as sure as God's word is in his book, so it is the word which is now being spoken. As it is, the Lord is powerful and can do all that he has claimed. His word is sure. This world ultimately belongs to him, and as such, he can do with this world as he pleases. As such, by appointing the land as he has to the animals, it reminds us of his sovereignty over the whole world. Not just Israel, not just Judah, but all the nations, all peoples, and all of nature itself. So the main point of these verses are to describe the devastation which comes from God's judgment on the people. Whether this judgment comes by God simply withdrawing his grace, allowing the humans to simply eradicate each other, or his own hand bringing forth judgment, in the end we find the results to be full of dread. As such, we find God is the sovereign over the whole world, able to apportion the world even to the animals which are under his control. The only question we have left to ask is, why would we decide to choose to put our trust and faith in any other power than this power who can do so much? All right. So just as a pause, um, obviously it's going to get dark real quick. Um, 
but I want to say that this chapter and the next chapter are meant to be combined, and we can't do it all in one day. So we're going to focus on chapter 34 today, and then two weeks, um, we'll uh, focus on chapter 35, and we'll see how it can kind of be turned to good. But right now, as it is, today's text is, we must concede, a dark text. What does it mean when we say dark? Well, to contrast, we are often confronted with the idea of God's love, his grace, his mercy. Oftentimes, it is easy to discuss these things, and it is easy to preach on them. Why? Because it makes every one of us feel accepted and cherished. Yes, it is easy to focus greatly on such attributes of God because we want God to be loving. We want him to be accepting. We want him to simply embrace us. We are a people who desperately desire to be desired exactly for who we are. Because of this, sermons abound concerning the love of God and his acceptance of us. Yet it is precisely because we have focused so greatly on the love of God that I think we find ourselves in a precarious situation that we do today. Whether discussing our culture, our congregations, we have greatly emphasized God's love for us. What we have failed to do, however, is equally emphasize God's justice his righteousness, and his wrath against sin. Perhaps it is fear which calls this to occur. We are scared to death to draw a line in the sand when it comes to our beliefs, sin, and hell itself. We are scared to death to be called names like Bible-thumping, hell, and fury, fire, and brimstone believers. How could we say such things when the world around us is so accepting in contrast? Surely, this would cause everyone to simply turn their backs on the faith, since it is too harsh. Yet harsh is exactly the word to use for a text like today. Consider the greatest acts God has done. The acts of the incarnation. God becoming man in flesh. Not only this, but then God becoming man, dying on the cross and rising again. That this brings about our redemption from sin and death and brings us reconciliation with our God and each other. Yes, this is a great word, but consider the darkness of it all. How sinful humanity must be that God could not simply tell us, be good. God could not simply say, don't do this. God could not simply say, stop sinning. No, instead we continue to be bad. We continue to do what we shouldn't, and we continue to sin. And so God, through the sacrifice of his own son, accomplishes something we could never accomplish on our own. That sin itself causes the death of the son of God. If we were to believe that sin is some minor thing, then we would not understand the ramifications of the gospel in the slightest. We would not understand the weight of our guilt, the weight of sin upon the human soul, that God himself bears our punishment upon the cross. How deep and dark must we be that this is the way which salvation comes? It says something both of God and of us. Of God that he is just, and of us that we are incredibly wicked and deserving of all judgment which could be brought against us. We are the Edomites. We are the worldly nations. We are the ones whose dwellings should become a vacant mess. It is us. 
We who dwell in darkness, we deserve all that we see in today's text. The judgment of God is a great thing. It is a horrible thing. Not because God is horrible, but because we are horrible. The state otherwise is to sugarcoat the reality of our faults and the reality of the repercussions of sin. Should we be like Edom? Then we deserve the judgments against Edom. Should we be like the world? Then we deserve the judgments against the world. If we seek to wander the desert, then we will die in the desert. This is the simple truth of the matter. The world continues to offer us a reprieve from ourselves. It continues to say it is strong enough to be the foundation for all of who we are and that we do not need God. It is no different than any of the pagan nations of old which claim to be following pagan deities. In both cases, either then or now, the world is attempting to usurp God as Lord over all and in doing so further allows destructive habits and tendencies to be tolerated and endorsed. It allows lies and condemns the truth. When we follow the world, We allow the same things. We allow sinful behaviors to be the norm. And we know sinful always leads to brokenness. Thus by promoting sin as what should be accepted and embraced. It leads to further destruction within the society and within ourselves. We, each one of us, has done this in some way or another. We have all saw our own sinfulness as well as accepted the sinfulness of the world in some capacity. Now, I know what you may be thinking right now. Certainly not I. Yes, you. Yes, me. Yes, our guilt. It is our individual guilt, and in that, our collective guilt. Not the guilt which is being promoted by the world today. Not the pseudo-neo-Marxist guilt of being white or male. But a guilt of defying God. That is the guilt we have. And that guilt is shared not by any one particular race, but all races. Not by one group of people, but by all peoples. Not by one nation, but all nations. As Isaiah says today, draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. We are the nations. We are the peoples. Can you, can I, stand against such a fury as the mighty God? Can we dare raise our clenched fist before this impenetrable force and claim to know better, claim to be better, to claim to be stronger? Shall we dare? Oh, we dare. We dare. The question we need to ask ourselves concerning our sinfulness and the guilt thereof is whether or not we feel the sword of the Lord above us. For we are deserving of that sword. Can you feel the weight the oppressive nature of our sinfulness? Can you feel the immoral impurity of your soul before a holy, righteous, and good God who judges not as mere mortals judge, but with a penetrating judgment which nothing can hide from? No sin will not be uncovered by his gaze. Not the deepest darkness can confound his stare. Do you feel it? Do you feel the blade against your skin? Do you feel the drops of blood? Do you feel the abominable 
presence of the darkness within you? Do you acknowledge that this holy and most righteous event must occur? If we should all fall on our knees now, it would be too late, for we have become a worthless people, full of pride, envy, lust, and darkness. Yes, know yourself, know your state, know your passion, know your brokenness, and know you are worthy of judgment, for you are, and so am I. Our knees should quake over the ramifications of these statements. For we are unworthy of such a lofty God as the one who has made himself known to us. We are unworthy of his glory. We are unworthy of his presence. That we could flee from such a one as this. Yet where could we go? For he is all-knowing, and he is everywhere, and we cannot escape him. Yes, the prophet Isaiah puts us in our place. He reminds us of our sinful state and he recognizes the reality that we are worthy of all that the Lord has declared. We are worthy of the judgment forever and ever. We deserve nothing less for all the sins we have committed for the guilt of our hands. For the Lord knows. He knows the evil within us and knows the evil of the nations and the peoples. There is much suffering in this world caused by our hands. And though many have felt the oppressive sting of sin and darkness, God will not let the guilty go unpunished. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. For those who continue to spurn his salvation and all that it entails, which includes newness of life, all those who slaughter innocent babes, all those who oppress the broken and desperate, all those who choose gain over people, all those who are immoral, all those who cause brokenness, all those who remain unrepentant of these things, they will experience vengeance. God will do it. While we seek justice here, oftentimes it eludes us. It will not elude. God. In this way, we have two great realities. The first is, we are the ones who should experience such a calamity. The second is, none will escape the calamity, because God is the ultimate judge. As such, we are reminded of this, that the injustice of this world are not the end. No, God is the end, and he will have his judgment, ending all evil once and for all. So it seems pretty clear how this relates to the gospel, um, at least to me anyway. Um, and when it comes to the gospel, it all begins as we saw in today's with the kids. It all begins with God creating us in his image. Well, actually it begins before that, but you know what I mean. It starts with God, God doing something. But even he considers the very good thing that he did was creating us in his image. And it is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing for us to be made in his image. It means that you're special, you're unique. Like the thumbprints that we talked about with the kids. It's all designed, purposeful. It's great. It's a wonderful thing of who we are inherently as image bearers of God. And this is something we rejoice in together. Why we have dignity and sanctity and worth to life. It's because we are made in the image of God. And no one can take that away from us. The problem though. Is what we find in this text. What we've seen in Isaiah so far. The problem is when we look at our very souls. And we see how much damage we can do to that which is so beautifully and wonderfully made. 
when we consider that we don't only damage each other, we don't only damage societies as a whole or nations, but that we would even take knives and cut ourselves up with sin. Something so beautiful as the human being who is made in the image of God and we would just destroy it. For what? Because we believe it brings us power. Because we think that if we should continue to sin that we will be the ultimate beings in all the world. Because sinning is so much easier to do than living in goodness. Following after God and recognizing that he is the one ultimate being and we are not. Yes, we deserve the judgment. Our nations deserve the judgment. But there is one little verse in here that casts a very, very great beam of light. And that is that God does all of this judgment not only for his own name, but for his people. God always provides a way for us despite the judgments. And when it comes to salvation, even from this judgment, it can happen. We'll see it in two weeks. Come back. But the gospel itself provides us this, the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came, he lived, he died, in time, space, history, and flesh, and that he rose again. He's the sacrifice on our behalf. It's the way of salvation. And so when all of judgment is raining down around us, if we follow this one path, no judgment will touch us. It's like a perfect way of peace, security. And it's not even made by our hands. (laughs) It's made by the blood of Jesus. And his peace is a peace forevermore. And so we have nothing to fear if we're in Christ. You're forgiven. The judgment you deserve is no more if you believe. And we get scared of something like this passage. And we should in a way because only God could do something as as incredible in a way as this. But then only God could provide us a way out. And he does provide us a way out. So when we read this passage, we don't fear anymore. We say, you know what? The Lord is good because judgment is good. Because sin is bad. And so as it is, where does it lead if we follow after Christ? Well, it leads to glory. It leads to his presence. It leads to us knowing him perfectly. I know that today's passage is dark. I know that it's hard to hear. I know it's hard to be introspective and to take time to think about all the sins we have committed. But if we do that, then we'll know exactly what it means for the gospel to have happened, what it means for Christ to have come. It's something we cannot neglect. We need to hear it. So that way we can love God even more for what he has done in Jesus. He has saved us. We rejoice in that. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for Isaiah. We thank you so much for the prophets who remind us of who we are without you. Who remind us that destruction is what happens 
the more we spurn your hand. The more we reject you, it will only ever lead more and more into our own obliteration. And Lord, we know that the nations deserve judgment because they continue to seek not what is good, not what is right, but power in and of themselves. But you, Lord, you are the ultimate power, a power that has no hindrances. Whereas nations rise and fall, you never do. You are always here with us, guiding us, showing us the way through all of it. And so, Lord, as we consider judgments and as we consider wrath, let us know that your wrath passes over us through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And let these passages urge us to look at you as you deserve to be looked at. The great God who is capable of destroying but is also capable of saving. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.